Well, in verse 35 of Job chapter 31, Job cries out, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had written a book. At a kid's summer camp, a counselor was leading a discussion on creation. He explained why God created the clouds and the trees and the rocks and the rivers and the animals. That God had a good reason for all that he had created. That's when one little boy questioned him. He says, if God has a good purpose for everything, then why did he create poison ivy? Well, his question was followed by dead silence. The counselor didn't quite know how to answer. Finally, another of the children came to the rescue. He explained to the class, well, the reason God made poison ivy is that he wants us to know there's certain things we just need to keep our cotton-picking hands off of. A good explanation indeed. Well, I believe when we get to heaven, we'll discover that every story begun in this life does finish with a happy ending. There is a good reason for everything God does. The problem, though, is that we don't always see His purpose. There are issues in life, like poison ivy, that cause us great grief, and for no apparent reason. Some situations have no sane, logical explanation, and we wonder why. How do you respond when bad things happen and God gives no reason why? As Christians, we believe God is sovereign. That means He does whatever He likes, whenever He likes, however He likes, to whomever He likes. God rules the universe, both good and evil. God is the boss. Read the first chapter of the book of Job, and you'll notice that Satan can't harm a hair on Job's head without first getting God's permission. Nothing happens in our lives, or in the universe for that matter, that isn't at least permitted by God. Of course, God's sovereignty is a wonderful doctrine when circumstances are pleasant. When things are going well, we're delighted that God has chosen to bless us. But what's your attitude when life takes a turn for the worse? And for no apparent reason. In my early years as a Christian, I had a friend who was a captivating Bible teacher. He had a growing ministry. He was a husband and a father of five kids. And his life was influencing thousands of people for Jesus including my own. I'll never forget the day I heard on the radio that the prop plane that he had been flying had slammed into the side of a mountain. The news broke my heart. And I can remember sitting in my office crying out, God, why? Look at all he's doing for your kingdom. Why this? This is how I respond today when I hear of a tornado that touches down and wipes out a trailer park. Or a family on vacation destroyed by a drunk driver or a virtuous woman who's raped, or a hemophiliac who gets AIDS from a blood transfusion, or a hard-working husband who gets laid off and can no longer feed his family, or a child born severely retarded, or a follower of Jesus diagnosed with a cancer. What happens to your faith when bad things happen, when you encounter disappointing situations? How do you respond when bad stuff happens to good people, even God's people, and you see nothing good result? Have you ever asked why? (laughs) Have you ever screamed why? Well, how do you deal with the poison ivy in your life? Job dealt with plenty of poison ivy. 
In the first two chapters of the book, we learn how that overnight, Job lost everything. His fortune, his family, his fitness, his friends. And usually a man in such distress can lean on the comfort of his wife. But Mrs. Job told him to just curse God and die. Not exactly what you want to hear from the Mrs. I'm sure you've all heard of the stress factor index. It's a set of numerical values that try to quantify the amount of stress produced by certain events. For example, the death of a spouse equals a 100, the death of a close family member a 63, fired from a job a 47, a pregnancy is a 40, that's for the wife, it's a 100 for the grandpa, and on it goes. The experts say that 79% of those whose stress factor index hit 300 plus suffer a major illness as a consequence. Well, when I figured Job's stress factor index, it added up to 650, twice the danger level. If you think you got problems, just check out Job. And here's the kicker. Job did nothing to deserve what had happened to him. Job gets vindicated from the outset. Chapter 1, verse 1 tells us Job was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. In chapter 2, verse 3, the Lord himself says that all that happened to Job came upon him, quote, without a cause. Oh yes, Job was human. And like all humans, he was a sinner. But Job had done nothing specific to warrant his calamity. In fact, if you doubt Job's devotion to God, just look at his initial reaction to his loss. Chapter 1, verse 21, there he utters, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. To me, that is one of the strongest statements of faith in all the scriptures. Job chapter 1 verse 22 sums up Job's part in his calamity. We're told in all this, Job did not sin. Now in Job chapters 1 and 2, we are told why all this devastation occurred in Job's life. You see, Job got caught in the middle of a cosmic showdown between God and Satan. One day, Satan appeared before God. And like a proud papa, God mentioned the piety of his servant Job. Well, Satan scoffed. He said, well, God, you've blessed Job so abundantly. Why wouldn't he serve you? God, you've spoiled him. Allow a little hardship to break loose, and Job will turn on you in a heartbeat. You know, ironically, rather than Job being punished for some evil deed, just the opposite was true. God was so proud of Job's devotion, he had staked his honor on Job's reaction. Without knowing it, Job had become the appointed protector of God's glory. You know, whenever I read the book of Job, I'm struck by an often overlooked fact, and that's this. Job never read the first two chapters of the book of Job. (laughs) He never did. We're told why he suffered, but not Job. Until the day he died, Job never got an explanation for his calamity. God never told Job why. But that sure didn't stop his friends from trying to answer the question. And for the bulk of the book, chapters 3 through 31, 
three buds, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, take turns offering their explanation for the cause of Job's sufferings. I figure they were golfing buddies. They were a foursome that met every Saturday. And when Job didn't show up one morning, they came to check on their friend. When they arrive, they find Job in the ash heap. He's scratching his oozing sores with a broken piece of pottery. For seven days, they just sit there in silence, mourning for their friend. As it turns out, just sitting there with Job, being there for Job, was the only beneficial service that they offered. For when they open their mouths, they begin to torture Job with erroneous counsel. In chapter 16, verse 2, Job tells his friends how much help they were. He says, miserable comforters are you all. You see, Job's golfing buddies are like many folks today who are trapped in a restrictive, defective theology. I like to call it a kindergarten theology. It's the simplistic view. It's the belief that in this life, sin is always punished and good is always rewarded. Thus... When bad things happen, it means that the victim must have committed a sin. As kids, our experiences with mommy and daddy seem to confirm this belief. I mean, parents are good at seeing to it that our good deeds are prized and that our bad deeds are punished. But then we move out into the real world. And we discover that's not always how life pans out. Bad things do happen to good people. Bad people often get away with their crimes. Circumstances are not always just. Life isn't always fair. You know, being a bit of a golfer myself, I've noticed how that golfing buddies particularly like to hold to this kind of defective theology. This simplistic kindergarten theology. Whenever a golfer hits an errant shot off into the woods and it caroms off the tree trunk and bounces back out to the middle of the fairway, He'll usually turn to his partner and he'll say, well, looks like I'm living right. As if holy living entitles you to favorable breaks while unholy living leaves you in the rough. I wish life were always that straightforward. But it's not. And this is what Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar refuse to admit. They become adamant. For 29 chapters, they scrutinize Job to uncover the smallest chink in his armor on which they can blame his demise. At points in the dialogue, they even make up accusations. Job's three friends try every tactic imaginable to pin a sin on Job. Tragically, there are also Christians today who hold to this same faulty theology. Listen to most TV preachers and you'll hear a kindergarten theology. Do the right thing and you'll be rich. You'll be healthy and happy. You'll be driving that Lexus in no time. Trust me, Paul and Jan would have never invited Job onto their show. I have a friend who suffers from chronic asthma. She is such a godly lady. She is a woman of prayer. Yet her Christian friends went to great effort to try to pin a sin on her. Her friends, like Job's friends, tried to insist that her suffering was the result of some sin. Reminds me of a Peanuts cartoon strip. Do you like Peanuts? Snoopy's standing there next to his doghouse. It's been burned to the ground with a fire, and he's sobbing. He said, oh, I've lost my pool, my Van Gogh, all of my keepsakes. And that's when Lucy approaches him, and she snaps at him, and she says, I can tell you why a house burned down. 
you sinned. Snoopy responds with one of the best theological answers ever uttered. He sounds like Job. He says, <laughs> You see, here's the problem with this kind of defective theology. It backs you into a corner. So that when bad stuff happens, you only have two options. Either God failed or you sinned. And that's why Job's friends insist that the problem is Job. If it isn't, in their minds, it means that God has failed. And they're not about to entertain that possibility. In reality, though, neither assertion was true. The real cause of Job's sufferings was hidden in the heavens. He knows there's a reason. He knows there's got to be another option. He just doesn't see it. And learning why, making sense of his mess, becomes the burning issue in Job's life. Once two Americans, they traveled down to Mexico to open up a bungee jumping operation. And as they erected the tower, a curious crowd of locals all gathered around to watch. Well, finally, it came time for a test jump. One of the guys, he dove off of the platform. But when he bounced back up, his partner noticed that he was a little scraped. He gasped, oh no. The cord must be too long. He tried to grab his friend, but he slipped through his hands. Well, the second time the guy bounced back up to the platform, he was in worse shape. He had some bruises and some broken ribs. Again, his buddy tried to grab him, but he missed him. Well, the third time he rose back to the platform, the poor guy was so badly beaten he was nearly unconscious. This time his sidekick lunged and, and grabbed him and pulled him to the platform and he asked him, he said, oh, he said, I'm so sorry, was the cord too long? <laughs> and that's when his partner replied, no, the cord was just fine, but what's a piñata? <laughs> hey, sometimes life gets rough. It'll beat you up and you don't know why. Or worse, it treats your partner, your spouse your co-worker, even your child, like a piñata, and you get no explanation. He loves you, Lord. Why did this happen to him? She's such a good person, Lord. Why her? We've all asked those questions, haven't we? You see, Job too was good and godly, but virtue didn't insulate him from his pain. Remember, it wasn't Job's sin that made him a target for hardships. It was his goodness don't be deceived. Just because a person is hurting doesn't mean they're sinning. And just because they're thriving doesn't mean God is pleased. Hey, it does pay to be good and godly. But payday doesn't always come in this life. In the here and now, calamity can strike even the most godliest among us. Difficulties can hit without explanation. Hey, faith doesn't always get a reason. Don't let life back you into a corner. When things go wrong, we think there are only two conclusions. Either God failed or I'm a failure. And since none of us are going to blame God, hopefully, it's got to be me. And so we beat ourselves up. But remember the story of Job. When bad stuff happens, it doesn't mean God has failed, nor does it mean that you're a failure. There could be a reason hidden from view. Heaven knows the whole story. And God is expecting us to trust in Him. And this is why our responses on earth really do matter.
For in a mysterious way, unknown to you and me, God's reputation may be hanging on the way that you handle that hassle or that hardship or that hindrance. God's honor in heaven, His glory may be riding on your reaction to the twists and turns life throws your way. You see, to me, the message of Job is the most practical in all of the Bible. It ups the ante on everything that happens in my life. My every reaction becomes strategic. Think of it. Every eye in heaven may be fixed on you to see how you handle that illness or that lie told about you or that lawsuit filed against you. Will you fold or will you be faithful? The book of Job teaches us a vital lesson. And that is this. The stress in my life may just be a test of my faith. Listen, Satan has accused God of stacking the deck, of buying our devotion with his blessing. He assumes that God is nothing more to us than a meal ticket, and he has thrown down the gauntlet. He has said to God, nix their blessing, and they'll stop their devotion. Do you realize that God may have chosen you to prove otherwise? God's character may be on the line in heaven, and your response to difficulty is the very thing that wins the day. I'm just saying the stakes may be a lot higher than any of us realize. One certainty is that our reactions really do matter. Now, I have no doubt Job would have gladly suffered for God if he had just been told the effect that his faithfulness was having in heaven. But you see, Job never got a hint. Understand, Job's greatest grief was not caused by his material losses or even the boils on his body. Job's most excruciating pain was not knowing why. You know, I've found that the best pain reliever by far isn't Advil. It isn't Tylenol 3. It isn't even Demerol. It's an explanation. You see, if there's a good reason behind my suffering, then I tend to rise to the occasion. But how do you respond when God refuses to give you a reason? I mean, it's like going to the doctor to get a shot. Oh my, I don't like shots. But if I'm told the reason for the shot, I might be able to accept it, endure it, maybe even be thankful for it. But what if I'm given a series of shots without being told the reason they're being given? Trust me, I won't be as tolerant. In fact, I'll get downright ugly and upset. I'll begin to pound my fist down on the counter, and I'll want to demand to know why. And you see, that's what Job begins to do in this book. He begins to pound his fist. And over the course of the dialogue with his three friends, Job demands more and more to know why. In chapter 7, verse 11, Job even grows bitter. He moans, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. You know, it's interesting. The word complain occurs more times in the book of Job than in any other book of the Bible. Nearly half the complaints recorded in Scripture fall from the lips of Job. We speak of the patience of Job, but the person in this story with the real patience was God. He was the one who had to put up with Job's spewing bitterness. You see, Job loses perspective. He forgets who God is, His holiness, 
his righteousness, his justice. Job becomes bold and brash as he questions God in his mind, in his own estimation of things. Job starts to get bigger and bigger. And God starts to get smaller and smaller. It's been said in asking why, Job loses his way. And by the time we get to our text, Job 31 verse 35, Job believes that God owes him an answer. In fact, he demands it in writing. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had written a book. Hey God, I want a reason and I want it printed out. Arrogance has replaced Job's innocence. You see, Job has become so sure of himself that he started to doubt God. In fact, at one point in the dialogue, Job even says to his friends, if my only two options are I've sinned or God has failed, then God has failed because I certainly haven't sinned. Job, who do you think you are? Job comes perilously close to blasphemy. In his commentary on Job, author Don Baker He makes this point about pain. He writes, pain speaks a strange language. It plays funny tricks on us. It makes us think things and say things and even believe things that are not true. When pain bores its way through human flesh and into the human spirit and then just sits there and hurts and hurts, the mind becomes clouded and the brain begins to think strange thoughts like God is dead or he's gone fishing, or he just doesn't care. You see, pain was having this kind of an effect on Job. And toward the end of Job's discourses, he starts challenging God to speak. He charges God with giving him a raw deal. He accuses God of being unfair. In his attempts to vindicate himself, Job accuses God. Job is more into proving his own innocence than he is in upholding God's justice. In short, our friend Job, he cops an attitude. You know, some situations have no explanations. Nothing at least that that makes sense here on earth. Some situations have reasons that will only make sense in heaven. Today we live a very temporal, earthbound existence. And that's why it's wrong for us from our limited perspective to question or to criticize an eternal God. We're told in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. Never forget one of the first rules of theology. Where God has placed a period, don't you change it to a question mark. If God doesn't offer you an explanation, learn to live without one. Don't push it. Ultimatums don't work on God. Trust in His wisdom. Here's the question. Can you trust God even when you can't trace Him? It's easy to praise God when we see His hand at work, when God's blessings, even His lessons are tangible. But is our faith alive enough to survive in the dark? Did you hear about the four passengers on the train from Atlanta to Philadelphia? All four riders, they were seated in the same compartment. There was an Atlanta Braves fan. There was a Philadelphia Phillies fan. There was a gorgeous young woman. And there was an elderly lady. Well, everyone was being very cordial to each other. 
until the train passed through this long, dark tunnel. Suddenly, there was a loud, followed by an equally loud, wow. But when the train exited the tunnel, each passenger, they just sat there quietly looking at each other, trying to interpret what the noises had meant. Well, the beautiful woman, she thought, isn't that odd? A Philadelphia Phillies fan tries to kiss an elderly woman and not me. The elderly woman, she thought, man, that young girl, she has some high morals. She's a fine young lady. The Phillies fan, he thought, man, that Braves guy's a smart guy. He steals a kiss and I get slapped. While the Braves fan, he's sitting there thinking, perfect. I kiss the back of my hand, slap a Philadelphia fan, and nobody ever knows. <laughs> hey, sometimes things happen in the dark. And God chooses not to reveal his specific reasons. And if we're not careful, we can draw the wrong conclusions, can't we? See, it reminds me of the little boy who was scared of the dark. Late one night, his mother asked him to fetch the broom off the back porch. He balked. He said, but mommy, it's dark out there. His mother told him, he said, honey, don't worry. Jesus is always with you. He's with you wherever you go, even when you're in the dark. Little guy, he walked over to the back door. He cracked it open just a fraction, and then he shouted out, hey, Jesus, if you're out there, how about handing me that broom? <laughs> hey, God wants us to learn. Listen. God wants us to learn that Jesus is with us even in the dark places. Hey, how do you react when circumstances occur that you don't deserve? Have you grown bitter? Have you become angry? Have you been demanding an explanation? Is your name Job? Well, let me show you how God finally responds to Job. In chapter 38, God appears to Job, but not to answer his questions. No, no, no. God takes a most unusual tact. He comes to Job asking questions, not answering them. And for the last five chapters of the book, God asks Job a series of questions he can't possibly answer. A total of 70 unanswerable questions. You see, the Almighty is about to show Job that he doesn't know as much as he thinks he does. It's time for God to put Job back in his place. God appears to Job in a whirlwind, and he says to him in verses 2 and 3, he says, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That's just a fancy way of saying, Who's this guy I've been listening to that doesn't know what he's talking about? He says, Now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you will answer me. Pull up your bootstraps, Job. I got a few questions for you. God is about to remind Job that you spell the word God, G-O-D, not J-O-B. In verse 4, God begins his quiz. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? <laughs> Job has been instructing God on how to run the universe, but here God makes it clear that he doesn't really need Job's help. He was doing fine long before Job came along. He says, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. God even gets sarcastic. Job, was it you holding the tape? I don't think so. 
You see, throughout the book, Job's incessant questioning of God's wisdom implied that he could do a better job of running the universe than God. But could he? Can you? On and on, these questions continue. God firing these queries that Job can't answer. You know, it's interesting. As Job questioned God, in Job's estimation, he grew larger and larger, and God grew smaller and smaller. But now that the roles are reversed, and God begins to question Job, suddenly in Job's thinking, it's God who's becoming larger and larger. And it's Job who's becoming smaller and smaller and smaller again. Hey, Job is getting taken down a notch or two. He's getting whittled down to size. Up against God's infinite wisdom, a finite Job knows very little. What right does he have to question or criticize the Almighty? Who does Job think he is? You see, here's a great quote. If there's anything a sufferer needs, it's not an explanation, but a fresh new look at God. You see, we think we need an answer. That we'll never be satisfied until we know why. But what we really need is a vision of God. When God appears, the reason no longer matters. All that really matters is God. You see, Job thinks he's learned his lesson. Listen to his reply to God in chapter 40, verse 4. He says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth once I have spoken but I will not answer, yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. And at first it seems as if Job has gotten the message, but I don't think so. Here's what's happened. Job has simply gone from pounding to pouting. From beating his fist to now sticking out his lip. In essence, he's saying, okay, God, you win You've made your point. I'll just shut up and serve you. You see, Job agrees to serve the Lord, but you can bet he's going to serve God with a grudge. Do you know anybody who's been serving God with a grudge? Job has accepted God's sovereignty, but he doesn't really like it. I want you to understand this. God doesn't want us to pound or pout. There is a third option. We can praise Him for who He is, come what may. God wants us to embrace His sovereignty. You can say lovingly, Lord, that will be done. Or you can say begrudgingly, all right then God, have it your way. And here Job is doing the latter. He's giving in only because he has no other choice. And God is not through correcting Job's attitude. Again, God comes to Job in the whirlwind. And he says to him in chapter 40, verse 7, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. God didn't like the first answer he got from Job, and so he has a few more questions. You see, God is relentless in his humbling of Job. He is after in Job what he wants in us. Not reluctance, but repentance. God wants Job as well as you and me. To rejoice in His sovereignty. To worship Him despite our circumstances. He wants us to realize that He not only runs the universe, but He runs our lives and He's better at it than we are. Well, this time Job answers God. He gets it right. We're told in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. 
Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen please and let me speak. You said I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job never did learn why, but he learned something much more valuable. He learned who. And when you know who, you don't really need to know why. There are people I know whose chief ambition to getting, in getting to heaven is to get answers to their questions. And I'm sure they'll get their answers, but I'm just as certain that in heaven their answers won't be nearly as important as they think. For when we see the glories and the beauties of our Lord Jesus, all of the perplexities, all of the questions will be overshadowed. In the end, the who will swallow up all of the why. Following the difficult days of World War II, King George VI of England, he made a statement to his countrymen about the uncertainties of the coming new year. I said to the man at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may walk safely into the unknown. Oh, but he said to me, go out into the darkness and put your hand in the hand of God and it shall be to you better than the light and safer than the known. Think about that. The hand of God. Better than the light. And safer than the known. Some of you are walking out into an uncertain future. And you've been questioning God. Don't you think a better response would be to grip His hand just a little tighter? Once there was an old man, he was walking with his grandson one day. When he asked the boy, he said, son, do you know where you are? No, Grandpa, I'm lost. Son, don't you know how far you are from home? Oh, no, sir. Well, son, it does sound like to me you're lost. The little boy thought about it again, and then he started grinning. He said, no, Grandpa, I changed my mind. I can't be lost. Grandpa asked him, he said, son, why are you so sure? And that's when the little guy answered, Grandpa, I can't be lost because I'm with you. And you see, this is what God wants us to learn. That even when we don't understand, that even with no explanation, we are never lost when we're with God. He can be trusted well, how do you cope with the poison ivy in your life? Here's what Job would tell us. God is sovereign. He is a big God. He takes orders from no one. He does as He pleases without getting our permission or giving us an explanation. That's why we need to turn off our complaints and our doubts and our questions. And we need to turn on our worship. For God is worthy to be praised. Love God, don't fight Him. Trust God, don't question Him.
Real faith doesn't need to know why when it's certain of who. Always remember, what's over my head is still under God's feet. Would you say it with me? Would you? Ready? What's over my head is still under God's feet. One more time. Ready? What's over my head is still under God's feet. God loves you so much. He loves you. In fact, He is so proud of you that He has staked His glory on your reactions. Imagine that. God believes that your response to difficulty is going to honor Him. Father, we thank You for Your Word today. Lord, as we meditate on these truths, I pray that You'll help, them, help us to apply them to our hearts. Some of us, Lord, have been like Job. We need to admit it this morning. We need to be honest and come clean. We've been pounding our fists. We've gotten mad at the world. We've gotten mad at you. We've gotten mad at the instruments in our lives that you're using to accomplish your purposes in us. And we've become angry and bitter toward you ultimately. We need to stop our pounding today. Some of us, Lord, have stopped pounding, but we're now pouting. We've kind of accepted it because we can't change it, but we sure don't like it. We haven't embraced your purposes, whatever they might be. We haven't opened up our lives. We haven't admitted that you love us and that you're working in us. And some of us, Lord, need to stop our pouting today. and We need to lovingly and willingly embrace your will for our lives. Lord, rather than pound, rather than pout, I pray you'll help us all to praise you from the bottom of our heart. Come what may, despite our circumstances, may we praise you for the God that you are, for the love that you've shown, for your faithfulness to your people. And even though we've gone through a rocky road, a bumpy time, Lord, your purposes never fail. We can trust in You. I pray that You'll help us, Lord, to praise You for who You are, come what may. We love You, Lord. We thank You that perhaps You've chosen us like You chose Job to bring glory to You in ways that we might never know till we get to heaven. Help us, Lord, to respond today with a heart of faith and trust and love. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.